Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the MBN Entrepreneurship and Leadership Channel. As well as new content, we are making available selected podcasts recorded by our hosts prior to joining the MBN family. This is one of them, and so this podcast may refer to itself with a different name and identity. Enjoy the show. The centre of innovation is here, and you know this is part of the message of Project Cashmere of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money. Like I said, having the vision is great, but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level. I think Paulo those people who are really they do extremely well with very limited resources, and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, Project Kazimierz listener. Today we've got a very interesting guest on the show. He's Mr. Asaf Navot, who I first met in London, where he was speaking at a CAM Entrepreneurs British Computer Society Entrepreneurs Group event. He's got a very interesting background. He's leading a startup which, depending on how you define success, looks as if it's going to be successful if making a profit is the benchmark. He's on target for that. Um, Rather than me try to explain... Who he is and his background, uh, I'll ask him to just like do his one minute introduction to who he is if he bumps into an interested stranger on a train. Uh, Probably won't talk to that stranger, but um, my background is I spent eight years in the army um, in Israel, then went to study my MBA in France and Singapore, and then spent six years in strategy consulting in the UK, uh, working with two companies, Woodson Perma and Bain Company. Uh, well, my focus was in the first one was mostly retail and business complexity, and the second one it was mostly a uh, private equity support, as in commercial due diligence. Um, about a year and a half ago, I left Bain to launch Homemade, and what Homemade does is that we're a property tech uh, company. We focus on lettings in the UK. Uh, where our offering is specifically addressing the pain of very expensive real estate agencies in London, charging somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of a landlord letting income. And what we do is that we are able, with our technology and operating model, we are able to serve landlords um, with a premium offering at about somewhere between 60 and 90% lower fees. Okay, and and there's a really interesting lesson for any entrepreneur that usually uh, one of the first questions I ask a business person when they're they're telling me about their idea is, you know, why should people do business with you? In which way are you better than, than the competition? And when someone says, well, we're six or seven times cheaper than the competition and we offer a better service, way cheaper and significantly better is always interesting that quite often people talk a very fluffy language, you know, that we have a premium offering, but you don't know what it is. But cheaper and better always makes someone prick up their ears. Obviously, slightly cheaper and slightly better, it may not be enough, but much cheaper and much better is, and, and you really feel that your offering is much cheaper and much better, yeah? Yes, and, and not just that, we put our money where our market is in the sense that our fees are all success rate. So if a landlord is not happy with our service, we shouldn't be paid. If okay. we don't find tenants, we shouldn't be paid. So we are purely success driven and, and also the alignment of incentives is a very important part in an industry that is not very well known for having it. Yes, certainly, and obviously we'll put we'll put links to homemade in the um, 
in the in the show notes and various other things as well. Um, and okay, now we we're also interested in the entrepreneurial journey. A journey like when you um, sometimes, obviously, your career. You had your a lengthy period in the military and then business school and consulting yeah. before you took the step to. So, so in fact, how many years since you left high school were you working before you started your business in total? Um, fourteen. So I have an interesting um, business for that, but I, I don't have an undergrad. So when I finished my uh, when I finished the contract with the Air Force, I found out that three universities allow allow me to study an MBA without an undergrad. So Cambridge Business School, London Business School, and INSEAD. I applied and was accepted to all three and chose to go to INSEAD. So that saved three four years there in terms of uh, <laughs> of the time and. Uh, so I basically spent eight years army, which is non-commercial, but taught me a lot. And I spent six years in consulting, which is a different type of uh, commercial experience. But indeed, this is my first business. Okay, and, and it's interesting here that um, one of our uh, partners in Cam Entrepreneurs, Matt Clifford, who founded something called Entrepreneur First, um, which encourages talented people to go on a It's a kind of talent-based accelerator that's doing incredibly well. Um, they found that their their age cohort is going up a lot. When they started, they targeted, you know, graduates leaving leaving the best uh, universities um, they could find. And over time, they found that the age of people coming into the program is much higher. Recently, uh, a film has come out which I haven't seen, but for long, for many years, I've been telling the story of Ray Kroc, who who made McDonald's into a great business, and he was born in. 1902 and he shook hands with the McDonald's brothers in 1954 when he was 50, 52 years old uh, which is older than I am now and I always point out to people that there isn't a right time in, in the, but what you suddenly have to have an edge some kind of some kind of uh, particular thing that gives you an advantage and so it's not necessarily the right thing to start a business straight after straight after university or straight after school do you agree with that or do you think it's just like random I, I, I think it's personality based, right? If if someone is a bit more risk averse, then maybe a bit later, once they hedge the risk, as in you know, if things don't go well, that and that's not the career they want to choose. Um, I do think, however, that uh, there's a lot of value in learning some basic in a place that's a good academy. So whether it's a good employer, a, a potentially a good university, or even just a good uh, group of people that can teach you a lot. Yeah. Um, the, the, Sorry, yeah, I was going to say, a, a chap I used to do business with, Martin Martin Tapper, who was an export manager for Pitney Bowes Marking Systems, this was a good 20 years ago, said to me once, there's more than one way to skin a rabbit. And <laughs> I had never, I, I, I've only once tried to skin a rabbit, and it was a very unpleasant, I didn't succeed in any way of skinning a rabbit, and let alone more than one way. But I think quite often when people are talking about entrepreneurship, they assume there's a single journey. And it's just, the journeys are very different for different people. There are people who believe that entrepreneurs are born I'm not do you, do you think entrepreneurs are born or do you think you can turn yourself into an entrepreneur if that's what you want to be I, I think that a large portion of population is able to become an environment I think that it depends on the, the environment you're in but it's also about the path that you develop for yourself for example I, I knew that I had to learn a bit more commercial or strategic background after my non-commercial experience so I, I knew that I'm going to dedicate five to six years to learn these basics before I go and start startups when I wrote my essays to the universities to study my MBA, that was my plan, an MBA, five years in consulting, and then a startup. It happened to be the same thing, but it, uh, for me it was, I knew what I need to bridge, what are the things I need to learn, 
there's always something to learn. So you, at some point you have to make the leap and make the jump there. Um, but I think many people can become um, entrepreneurs. I think it's also around the, um, the there are some people who are natural in this, right? As, as moving forward and having tenacity. But as, as you said, there's no playbook, right? I mean, I think people, and we mentioned it when we first met, that um, nowadays people try to turn it into a bit of a theoretical, academic a subject. They teach entrepreneur. Uh, they teach in universities. There are books. There are movies. Um, there's no playbook. There, there are some ways to mitigate risk, but everything is moving. The market's moving. Your customers are moving. Competitors show up of nowhere. There's no single playbook to get it right. Except, except you just gave me a playbook list as you talked about. There's no playbook. And gave a gave a list of five things to remember. So, I'm, I'm 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 joking. I'm provoking. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was asked by a friend of mine uh, about a week ago. What what would I do if I was in his shoes when he wants to come to I said, in, in my view, talk to as many people as you can, ask them what worked well, what you regret doing, and just learn. You'll get more and more perspective. You won't get the solution for your case, but you'll get more ideas of, of what do you think is your style. Right? There has to be some fit with your style. I, I, yeah, I, I think one of the things that I, I say is, if you have, particularly if you have an idea, is to, don't be worried about people stealing your idea because it's the execution is is the issue, not the not the idea. The other thing is, as you talk to people, to the idea a great habit is to say, "I've got this idea. Tell me what you think's wrong with it." Because very often, in norm, you have to be quite vulnerable then, ready ready for people to attack. But if you're not ready for that, you're not ready for entrepreneurship. But more importantly. Quite often, socially, people want to be friendly and nice, and if, particularly if they're British, they'll say, "That's a really interesting idea. You're very brave," <laughs> which of course means you're a lunatic and you're going to go bankrupt. But if you say, "Tell me what's wrong with this idea," you actually get much more interesting feedback. And they might say, "That's really interesting," but I don't think you're going to be able to sell it, or the margins are too low, or or, or I just don't like the idea. But but that's that's interesting. So so. You know, from, from I think the the lesson to learn is not that it you you need to work for someone else first, or you need uh, you you should just go straight for it. Certainly, the direct. I remember when I was at a short course short course at the judge business school in Cambridge. Yeah. The director of the of the program, the Centre for Entrepreneurial Learning, told me that when they're engaged, they have a lot of mentors. And outside speakers coming in, people who've established businesses have been successful. And he said it's very important to have two two things clear for the people coming in to talk. One is that they should talk about to a curriculum. They shouldn't just talk about how wonderful they are. They should talk about marketing, talk about finance, talk about hiring and firing or whatever it is. But the second is that if they believe that entrepreneurs are born, not made, it questions are raised on detra of the Centre for Entrepreneurial Learning, that they are teaching entrepreneurship. And it's rather like leadership. Obviously, there are different aptitudes of leadership, but if you yeah. don't teach people about it, you don't train them, you're just leaving out this huge body of knowledge and experience from which you may or may not benefit. So you, you can always, it's like running, you know, if you never ever run, you will have yeah. a natural level, but if you train at it, anyone can get better at it, right? Absolutely, and I would add one more thing, which is, um, you don't have to feel that you're, let's say that you have an aspiration of building a company that is, has the potential of becoming, let's say, a one billion pound company. Mm -hmm. You don't have to feel that now you are, you can be a CEO of a one billion pound company, but you, you need to believe that you have the ability to grow into that over time and that your team members have the ability to grow into time. Um, one, one example I literally said yesterday to one of my team members is, I believe that everyone in our company should be underpaid. Underpaid as in they have the potential as we grow, They'll be over, you know. They're going to reach a place where the responsibilities and self-actualization is worth the um, the fact that we are underpaying. Because you know, if you want to be, you're a good company. It has its own value in the market. 
and you provide people the ability to grow in this role, then uh, it, it should be to some extent be representing salaries. Also, there's, there's, it's very clear to me now that there's much more than one type of entrepreneur. And people talk about lifestyle entrepreneurs, which, in fact, I, I often say a truism that a business that doesn't make a, a, a profit is a hobby, not a business. That <laughs> I, I, I remember meeting on the beach in Thailand a guy with a, a Swedish guy with a a jet ski business and he worked nine months a year driving his truck in Sweden to save up enough money to lose lose it running his so-called jet ski business in Thailand and it was a lifestyle business it was his his hobby he was never going to make a profit but but it's incredibly important when you're looking for founders to get alignment that you, you and this was a problem I had with one of my businesses that when we start we began to succeed in the sense of making a profit and for for one of them, it was actually the case that he wanted to draw back and just like once he was making a few thousand dollars a month, which in Poland back then was was a decent amount of money, it, that was fine. He had hit his goal and I, ha I hadn't even considered at that stage that I might have that kind of co-founder. So, you know, and I, for me, once it got to 10 million, I wanted to go to 100 million or a billion. The fact that we didn't was partly to do with the fact that, you know, why should one founder be busting a gut to, to take it to the next level and jumping on a plane to Buenos Aires and the others going off to the bar and chilling with his friends because he's got a cool startup. So that, that, that sense of why you're doing it and what you want to achieve is incredibly important because if you just want to have a corner shop and be a, a part of your local community, you're an entrepreneur, but you're a different type of entrepreneur, right? Absolutely. And I think you probably want to talk about all those things when you hire someone who's a senior or a co-founder. Really, go for it. Go for a walk. Just go for you know a few hours, discuss about everything, about life, about perception, because everything that you feel up front will be you know a thousand times more severe later on, right? So if you think this person doesn't have the same ambition and alignment as to what it takes for us to succeed, then it will be an issue at some point. You, you've, so, you, you've grown your business very, very fast. How, how many people do you have now? So we have 17, and we'll be 20 by the end of the month. So, so, so you're growing, and anyone, presumably anyone very talented who wants to work in a high-growth startup listening to this, they'd be welcome to get in touch with you, I, I would imagine. Okay. Absolutely. We hire about four to five new people every single month. Okay, so, so and obviously we'll uh, there may be a special link for hiring. But when you are recruiting, um, this actually ties into the most recent podcast we we did on on um, on uh, Project Kashmir, which was my father, who I'm, I'm visiting later today in hospital. He we, he was uh, teaching in Oxford University, and I asked him what he looked for in students, and he yeah. said and he said it is always people who go beyond the the things they have to do who are looking to do more than the, what's required and when it came to academics in in to who might actually work in the university to join the department it was looking at things in a new way you know bringing something more and when you're recruiting people what are you looking for and what sort of questions do you ask to try to because obviously there's a kind of you can read books on how to prepare for an interview and you people you never say i'm what are your weaknesses you never say i'm lazy and dishonest you know there are there's, there's, but what, what sort of questions do you ask to try to to get to the core of whether he's a, a good he or she's a good fit so in general generally speaking i look at four different things right i look whether you know the, the the intellectual, the, the intellectual capacity or the ability or how smart they are and whether they fit in that sense. There's the element around um, execution, the ability to deliver. There's around the relevant experience and there's a lot, a lot around values, right? 
And so the first one, it's, it's a bit easier, it's just from the discussion, and, and you can ask a few hypothetical questions. I'm not a big fan of hypothetical because people try to humor you and they try to give you the answers that they think that you want. And, but it does tell you a bit about the EQ and the, the social skills. And the second and third are more around the previous experience, but the, the fourth one is the most interesting one. And, and what, I'm, what I usually do is I, I would start with two things. The first one is, is scenario-based where we think of a situation, so tell me about a situation in the past, not in the future, but in the past that you had where you were stretched, where you know you failed you or you succeeded, something that um, brought you to, the, you know, it limits the, the moment you look back. People are a bit more limited in their creative thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, they find it a bit more um, difficult to um, change the way that they operate in that, in that setting. And, and then we start deep diving into that. And I try to focus at least on two or three uh, key attributes that we're looking for from, from a fit per, uh, perspective. The second thing which is very, very important is, is around teamwork, right? So there are a few tricks, and I hope that uh, if I share them now and people hear it, they won't use it uh, during the interviews. But there are some basic HR tricks that allow you to assess whether a person, one person is a, is a team player or not. Um, I'll, I'll give you a simple one, which is... a. So far, I was uh, I, I believe was quite successful. But even asking someone who has you know at least two or three years of experience is, can you tell me about two people that you impacted their career? All right. So think of two people that you changed the path of their career. Mm-hmm. It is uh, statistically, at least, more, most people that think of someone who was above them, right? They were reporting to are less of team players, and the ones that think of, of subordinates are people who try to impact and help other people on the team. Mm-hmm. So that's just one of those things that allow you to see that. And, mm-hmm. and we um, are heavily relying on our business model on each other. So it's a team sport. Even each individual salesperson makes, you know, earns based on their commission, but it's still a team sport, right? Our, um, our salespeople trade between themselves, right? So they would take a viewing, for example, in our, in our business, they would take a viewing of each other on the weekend because the other person can't make it without getting the commission, right, and so on and so on. So we, we want to maintain this DNA and this uh, team element while being ambitious about the goals and, and personal objectives, and we have to be very selective when it comes to, uh, to this process. And the last point is, is referrals, right? Getting references and talking to a person that they used to work with is absolutely essential. And and here the, there are cultural elements where some people are, would always give a very strong, positive um, feedback on, on a person regardless of their performance and some people would do would always be a seven right out of ten mm-hmm. um, and, and the example I use here is that um, um, we, we basically need to uh, ask a few questions and the key question here is would you hire this person again and the second one would you hire this person if you were in my shoes as in uh, and, and it's not always the same answer okay yes. so you want to know that, that it may come with very strong feedback from the previous, especially if they did a similar job in the past. On the subject of references, I'd broaden that and say that I found it incredibly valuable, not uh, one of my businesses, or several of my businesses that we've been the country representative in Poland of major companies, and uh, taking references of like, are are there other people who do this role in other countries? Just say, could you give me, could you give me the phone numbers or contact details of people who do this in other countries? And sometimes you don't even the center of innovation is here and you know this is part of the message of project cashmere of this whole podcast that there's something happening here which is beyond just good value for money like i said having the vision is great but the key is these concrete initiatives that drive it at the ground level
think Poland all these people who are really they do extremely well with very limited resources and we can take advantage of the really low costs here. You know, Poland is the land of opportunity, and I, and I like to say the East is the new West because you always used to go West in history to find more adventure and danger and prove yourself. There are some good things beginning to happen here in Krakow, but we've got a very long way to go. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good night, Project Kazimierz listener. Today we've got a very interesting guest on the show. He's Mr. Asaf Navot, who I first met in London, where he was speaking at a CAM Entrepreneurs British Computer Society Entrepreneurs Group event. He's got a very interesting background. He's leading a startup which, depending on how you define success, looks as if it's going to be successful if making a profit is the benchmark. He's on target for that. And rather than me try to explain who he is and his background, uh, I'll ask him to just like do his one minute introduction to who he is if he bumps into an interested stranger on a train. Uh, probably won't talk to that stranger, but um, my background is I spent eight years in the army um, in Israel, then went to study my MBA in France and Singapore, Hinsiad, and then spent six years in strategy consulting in the UK, uh, working two company, with two companies, Wilson Perma and Bain Company. Uh, well, my focus was in the first one was mostly retail and business complexity, and the second one it was mostly a uh, private equity support, as in commercial due diligence. Um, about a year and a half ago, I left Bain to launch Homemade, and what Homemade does is that we're a property tech uh, company. We focus on lettings in the UK. Uh, where our offering is specifically addressing the pain of very expensive real estate agencies in London, charging somewhere between 10 and 15 percent of a landlord letting income. And what we do is that we are able, with our technology and operating model, we are able to serve landlords um, with a premium offering at about somewhere between 60 and 90% lower fees. Okay, and, and there's a really interesting lesson for any entrepreneur that usually uh, one of the first questions I ask a business person when they're, they're telling me about their idea is, you know, why should people do business with you? In which way are you better than, than the competition? And when someone says, well, we're six or seven times cheaper than the competition and we offer a better service, way cheaper and significantly better <laughs> is always interesting. That Quite often people talk a very fluffy language, you know, that we have a premium offering, but you don't know what it is. But cheaper and better always makes someone prick up their ears. Obviously, <laughs> slightly cheaper and slightly better, it may not be enough, but much cheaper cheaper and much better is and, and you really feel that your offering is much cheaper and much better yeah yes and, and not just that we put our money where our mouth is in the sense that our fees are all success rate so if a landlord is not happy with our service we shouldn't be paid if okay. we don't tenants we shouldn't be paid so we are purely success driven and and also the alignment of incentives is a very important part in an industry that is not very well known for having it Yes, certainly, and obviously we'll put we'll put links to homemade in the um, in the in the show notes and various other things as well. Um, and okay, now we we're also interested in the entrepreneurial journey. Uh, journey like when you um, sometimes obviously your career you had your a lengthy period in the military and then business school and consulting yeah. before you took the step to so so in fact how many years since you left high school were you working before you started your business in total um 14 so i, I have an interesting um business for that, but I, I don't have an undergrad so when i finished my uh, when i finished the contract with the air force i found out that three universities allow allow me to study an mba without an undergrad so cambridge business school london business school and insead 
I applied and it was accepted all free and chose to go to INSEAD. So that saved three, four years there in terms of, uh, <laughs> of the time. And uh, so I basically spent eight years Army, which is non-commercial, but taught me a lot. And I spent six years in consulting, which is a different type of uh, commercial experience. But indeed, this is my first business. Okay, and, and it's interesting here that um, one of our uh, partners in Cam Entrepreneurs, Matt Clifford, who founded something called Entrepreneur First, um, which encourages talented people to go on a... It's a kind of talent-based accelerator that's doing incredibly well. Um, they found that their, their age co cohort is going up a lot. When they started, they targeted you know, graduates leaving, leaving the best uh, universities um, they could find. And... Over time, they found that the age of people coming into the program is much higher. Recently, uh, a film has come out which I haven't seen, but for long, for many years, I've been telling the story of Ray Kroc, who who made McDonald's into a great business, and he was born in 1902, and he shook hands with the McDonald's brothers in 1954 when he was 50, 52 years old, uh, which is older than I am now. And I always point out to people that there isn't a right time, in, in, but what you certainly have to have an edge, some kind of some kind of uh, particular thing that gives you an advantage. And so it's not necessarily the right thing to start a business straight after, straight after university or straight after school. Do you agree with that or do you think it's just like well, random? I, I, I think it's personality-based, right? If, if someone is a bit more risk-averse, then maybe a bit later, once they hedge the risk, as in you know, if things don't go well, and, that, and that's not the career they want to choose. Um, I do think, however, that... Uh, there's a lot of value in learning some basic in a place that's a good academy. So whether it's a good employer, a potentially a good university, or even just a good uh, group of people that can teach you a lot. Yeah. Um, the, the, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, uh, Chapa, I used to do business with Martin, Martin Tapper, who was an export manager for Pitney Bowes Marking Systems. This was a good 20 years ago. said to me once, there's more than one way to skin a rabbit. And I had never, I, I, I only once tried to skin a rabbit and it was a very unpleasant, I didn't succeed in any way of skinning a rabbit, and let alone more than one way. But I think quite often when people talk about entrepreneurship, they assume there's a single journey. And it's just, the journeys are very different for different people. There are people who believe that entrepreneurs are born. I'm not, do, you, do you think entrepreneurs are born or do you think you can turn yourself into an entrepreneur if that's what you want to be? I, I think that a large portion of the population is able to become entrepreneurial environment. I think that it depends on the, the environment you're in, but it's also about the path that you develop for yourself. For example, I, I knew that I had to learn a bit more commercial or strategic background after my non-commercial experience. So I, I knew that I'm going to dedicate five to six years to learn these basics before I go and start startups. When I wrote my essays to the universities to study my MBA, that was my plan. An MBA, five years in consulting, and then a startup. It happened to be the same thing, but it, uh, for me it was I knew what I need to bridge, what are the things I need to learn. There's always something to learn, so you, at some point you have to make the leap and make the jump there. Um, but I think many people can become um, entrepreneurs. I think it's also around the, um, the... There are some people who are natural in this, right, as, as moving forward and having tenacity. But as, as you said, there's no playbook, right? I mean, I think people, and we mentioned it when we first met, that um, nowadays people try to turn it into a bit of a theoretical, academic... A subject they teach entrepreneur they teach in universities there are books there are movies and um, there's no playbook there, there are some ways to mitigate risk but everything is moving the market's moving your customers are moving competitors show up of nowhere there's no single playbook to get it right 
Except, except you just gave me a playbook list as you talked about. There's no playbook and gave a gave a list of five things to remember. I'm I'm I'm, I'm joking. I'm provoking. I, 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 was, I was asked by a friend of mine uh, about a week ago. What what would I do if I were in his shoes when he wants to come to I said, in, in my view, talk to as many people as you can. Ask them what worked well, what you regret doing, and just learn. You'll get more and more perspectives. You won't get into solution for your case, but you'll get more ideas of. of what do you think is your style? There has to be some fit with your style. I, I, yeah, I, I think one of the things that I, I say is, if you have, particularly if you have an idea, is to, don't be worried about people stealing your idea because it's the execution is is the issue, not the not the idea. The other thing is, as you talk to people, to, to idea a great habit is to say, I've got this idea. Tell me what you think's wrong with it, because very often in norm, particular, you have to be quite vulnerable then, ready ready for people to attack. But if you're not ready for that, you're not ready for entrepreneurship. But more importantly. Quite often, socially, people want to be friendly and nice, and in particular, if they're British, they'll say, "That's a really interesting idea. You're very brave," <laughs> which, of course, means you're a lunatic and you're going to go bankrupt. But if you say, "Tell me what's wrong with this idea," you actually get much more interesting feedback. And they might say, "That's really interesting," but I don't think you're going to be able to sell it, or the margins are too low, or or, or I just don't like the idea. But but that's that's interesting. So so. You know, from, from I think the the lesson to learn is not that it's you you need to work for someone else first, or you need uh, you you should just go straight for it. Certainly, the direct. I remember when I was at a short course short course at the judge business school in Cambridge. Yeah. The director of the of the program, the Center for Entrepreneurial Learning, told me that when they're engaged, they have a lot of mentors and outside speakers coming in, people who've established business have been successful. And he said it's very important to have two two things clear for the people coming in to talk. One is that they should talk about, to a curriculum, they shouldn't just talk about how wonderful they are. They should talk about marketing, talk about finance, talk about hiring and firing or whatever it is. But the second is that if they believe that entrepreneurs are born, not made, it, questions are raised on detra of the Centre center for Entrepreneurial Learning, that they are teaching entrepreneurship. And it's rather like leadership. Obviously, there are different aptitudes of leadership, but if you don't teach people about it, you don't train them, you're just leaving out this huge body of knowledge and experience from which you may or may not benefit. So you can always, it's like running, you know, if you never ever run, you will have a natural level, but if you train at it, anyone can get better at it, right? Absolutely, and I would add one more thing, which is, um, you don't have to feel that you're, let's say that you have an inspiration of building a company that is, has the potential of becoming, let's say, a one billion pound company. Mm-hmm. You don't have to feel that now you are, you can be a CEO of a one billion pound company, but you, you need to believe that you have the ability to grow into that over time and that your team members have the ability to grow into time. Um, one, one example I literally said yesterday to one of my team members is, I believe that everyone in our company should be underpaid. Underpaid as in they have the potential as we grow, They'll be over, you know. They're going to reach a place where the responsibilities and self-actualization is worth the um, the fact that we are underpaying. Because you know, if you want to be you're a good company, it has its own value in the market, and you provide people the ability to grow in this role, then uh, it, it, it should be to some extent be representing. Also, also, there's there's it's very clear to me now that there's much more than one type of entrepreneur, and people talk about lifestyle entrepreneurs, which, in fact, I, I often say a truism that a business that doesn't make a, a, a profit is a hobby, not a business. That <laughs> I, I I remember meeting on the beach in Thailand a guy with a a Swedish guy with a 
a jet ski business and he worked nine months a year driving his truck in Sweden to save up enough money to lose lose it running his so-called jet ski business in Thailand and it was a lifestyle business it was his his hobby he was never going to make a profit but but it's incredibly important when you're looking for founders to get alignment that you, you and this was a problem I had with one of my businesses that when we start we began to succeed in the sense of making a profit and for for one of them, it was actually the case that he wanted to draw back. And just like once he was making a few thousand dollars a month, which in Poland back then was was a decent amount of money, it, that was fine. He had hit his goal. And I, had, I hadn't even considered at that stage that I might have that kind of co-founder. So, you know, and I, for me, once it got to 10 million, I wanted to go to 100 million or a billion. The fact that we didn't was partly to do with the fact that, you know, why should one founder be busting a gut to, to take it to the next level and jumping on a plane to Buenos Aires and the others going off to the bar and chilling with his friends because he's got a cool startup. So that, that, that sense of why you're doing it and what you want to achieve is incredibly important because if you just want to have a corner shop and be a, a part of your local community, you're an entrepreneur, but you're a different type of entrepreneur, right? Absolutely. And I think you probably want to talk about all those things when you hire someone who's a senior or a co-founder. Literally, go for it. Go for a walk. Just go for you know a few hours, discuss about everything, about life, about perception, because everything that you feel up front will be you know a thousand times more severe later on, right? So if you think this person doesn't have the same ambition and alignment as to what it takes for us to succeed, then it will be an issue at some point. You, you've, so, you, you've grown your business very, very fast. How, how many people do you have now? So we have 17, and we'll be 20 by the end of the month. So, so, so you're growing, and anyone, presumably anyone very talented who wants to work in a high-growth startup listening to this, they'd be welcome to get in touch with you, I, I would imagine. Okay. Absolutely. We hire about four to five new people every single month. Okay, so, so and obviously we'll uh, there may be a special link for hiring. But when you are recruiting, um, this actually ties into the most recent podcast we we did on on um, on uh, Project Kashmir, which was my father, who I'm, I'm visiting later today in hospital. He we, he was uh, teaching in Oxford University, and I asked him what he looked for in students, and he yeah. said and he said it is always people who go beyond the the things they have to do, who are looking to do more than the, what's required. And when it came to academics in in to who might actually work in the university to join the department, it was looking at things in a new way, you know, bringing something more. And when you're recruiting people, what are you looking for and what sort of questions do you ask to try to because obviously there's a kind of you can read books on how to prepare for an interview and you people you never say i'm what are your weaknesses you never say i'm lazy and dishonest you know there are there's, there's, but what, what sort of questions do you ask to try to to get to the core of whether he's a, a good he or she's a good fit so in general generally speaking i look at four different things right i look whether you know the, the the intellectual, the, the intellectual capacity or the ability or how smart they are and whether they uh, fit in that sense. There's the element around um, execution, the ability to deliver. There's around the relevant experience and there's a lot, a lot around values, right? And so the first one, it's, it's a bit easier is, is just from the discussion and, and you can ask a few hypothetical questions. I'm not a big fan of hypothetical because people try to humor you and they try to give you the answers that they think that you want. But it does tell you a bit about the EQ and the, the social skills. Um, the second and third are more around the previous experience, but the, the fourth one is the most interesting one. And, and what, I'm, what I usually do is I, I would start with two things. The first one is, is scenario-based, where we think of a situation, so 
tell me about a situation in the past, not in the future, but in the past that you had where you were stretched, where you know you failed, you or you succeeded. Something that um, brought you to the, you know it limits the, the moment you look back. People are a bit more limited in their creative thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, they find it a bit more um, difficult to um, change the way that they operate in that in that setting. And, and then we start deep diving into that. And I try to focus at least on two or three uh, key attributes that we're looking for from, from a fit per, uh, perspective. The second thing which is very, very important is, is around teamwork, right? So there are a few tricks, and I hope that uh, if I share them now and people hear it, they won't use it uh, during the interviews. But there are some basic HR tricks that allow you to assess whether a person, one person is a, is a team player or not. Um, I'll, I'll give you a simple one, which is... Um, so far, I was, uh, I, I believe, was quite successful. But even asking someone who has, you know, at least two or three years of experience, is can you tell me about two people that you impacted their career? All right. So think of two people that you changed the path of their career. Mm-hmm. It is uh, statistically, at least, more, most people that think of someone who was above them, right? They were reporting to are less of team players, and the ones that think of, of subordinates are people who try to impact and help other people on the team. Mm-hmm. So that's just one of those things that allow you to see that. And, mm-hmm. and we um, are heavily relying on our business model on each other. So it's a team sport. Where we are. Even each individual salesperson makes, you know, earns based on their commission, but it's still a team sport, right? Our, um, our salespeople trade between themselves, right? So they would take a viewing, for example, in our, in our business, they would take a viewing of each other on the weekend because the other person can't make it without getting the commission, right, and so on and so on. So we, we want to maintain this DNA and this uh, team element while being ambitious about the goals and, and personal objectives, and we have to be very selective when it comes to, uh, to this process. And the last point is, is referrals, right? Getting references and talking to a person that they used to work with is absolutely essential. And and here the, there are cultural elements where some people are, would always give a very strong, positive um, feedback on, on a person, regardless of their performance, and some people would do would always be a seven, right out of ten. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the example I use here is that um, um, we, we basically need to uh, ask a few questions. And the key question here is, would you hire this person again? And the second one, would you hire this person if you were in my shoes? As in, uh, and, and it's not always the same answer. Okay. Yes. So you want to know that that it, they come with very strong. Uh, feedback from the previous, so they, especially if they did a similar job in the past. Mm-hmm. On, t- on the subject of references, I broaden that and say that I found it incredibly valuable. Not ju- uh, one of my businesses, or several of my businesses that we've been the country representative in Poland of major companies, and uh, taking references of like other other people who do this role in other countries. Just say, could you give me, could you give me the phone numbers or contact details of people who do this in other countries, and. Sometimes you don't even need to make the phone call. The body language tells you, like even the and this can be in a job interview. Can you give me the names of three or four people you've done business with, who I could give a call to take a reference? And sometimes you can see in that hundred milliseconds that there's something yeah. wrong. This is a very unwelcome question, and you, you and, and you know then people start to say, well, I, I need to make some phone call. Then then people start bluffing. You say, well, I'll need to check first. You know, it could be confidential. But you sometimes know even before. They've even spoken the other the, 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 there's something wrong and this this has saved me millions and millions of dollars actually that I have a funny story where someone said uh, I, I rang the reference and he, I said is it a good idea to do business with and to, um, to do business with this company and they said well who else are you talking to 
and I gave the name of their major competitor. And he said, well, you'll be interested to know that five years ago I wrote a letter to the managing director of that company saying that they were the most unethical, dishonest, unreliable, and, and unpleasant people I'd ever done business with, and I never wanted to do business with them again, no matter how much money I was going to make. And, and he said, does that help you with your choice? And, you know, this was a stranger. It's amazing what you can find out from a phone call. It's, it's, it's amazing. I mean, you... You have to run your own due diligence always, right? It's, yeah. a, it, it's not just team members, right? It's investors, it's key customers. Mm -hmm. you, 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 sometimes you only get one shot, right? And, and it's very easy to bring one bad apple into a, into an operation that... Yeah, I, I've seen it in with my, one of my, the companies I used to work with in the past. They brought a, a manager who was, was able to deliver, but brought a certain character that was not very um, positive. And as a result, many people left. Right, so so do, you do, do you do due diligence on your customers yet, or are you thinking about that? Um, I do. Um, it's easier for me because usually they come from a... So, so there are different types of customers. I've been to see my big Maybe describe your, describe your cust a typical customer. Describe your main customer categories because yeah. that, that will help people understand your business. So um, we provide uh, services similar to real estate agency, right? So if you were a landlord, you would get a full set of services from us. So you would get a, some, an account manager would come in. I'll just explain the context first, and then it's easy to explain the customers. Um, an account manager would show up, would uh, prepare a floor plan, take pictures, show you a demo of our product, of our online platform, and would explain you the process. Then we, we're going to take you through the process, and we're going to run the company feelings all the way to an offer. When an offer has been agreed with the landlord and tenants, we'll run the tenancy progression. So our customers depend. We have customers that are B2B, as in portfolio owners, and we have B2C as private landlords. Within the private landlords, you have um, several se segments that you will look into. It's about five segments, and it really depends on, if, if I were to go back into a consulting uh, jargon there, it's a two-by-two, two where on one axis it's how much they need you, and the second one, how much the, how sophisticated they are. Right? So if you're a landlord overseas, you must use an agency. You can't do it yourself, right? And in level of sophistication, it depends, right? But if you're a do-it-yourself landlord uh, using a spare room, for example, you don't need me, and your level of sophistication would probably going to be actually on the higher side, right? Because you have to deal with all the regulation and documentation, etc., etc. And the interesting segments here um, from us are mostly the pension-driven. So people that bought a house potentially in you know either 30s or 40s. Um, and they use it to at some point to have a suspension, right? So they rent it or they let it to someone. Um, those people understand the value of our offering. They they are looking for someone to take over all the painful points of this business, um, and they're very sticky or very um, they're sticky customers. If you provide a good service, and do you charge a yearly fee or is it a one? -off? You find a tenant for people. That's right. So yeah. so so you've got to land a, a land somewhere with a house. They're renting it out. You, you look for a tenant, you find a tenant, you get a success fee. Well, I think it's £795, which depending on which, uh, and typically in the UK market, I'm right in saying it's 10 to 15% is the typical, or 12 to 15 yes. is the normal share of the rent, which yes. means that if, if suppose it's £30,000 a year for renting a, obviously £2,500 a month, that sounds a lot for a Polish market, but in London that's quite normal, right? So, yeah, one two bed in a, not even. Most center or south south of town. Okay. So, 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 so obviously, as, as, a, as a percent, uh, yeah, as three a percent. to four thousand uh, compared to ours, without VAT even. 
Yeah, so 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 you're talking, uh, you know, as a major major cost saving, and obviously, but you, that's a one-off. So if if your tenant stays for five years, you don't get repeat revenue. Is that right? That's correct. However, we do provide certain services as we progress, right? And the, and the landlords do get access to our platform um, during this lifetime, right? So um, we do things such as if, if needed, we can do a renegotiation of the contract for a very low fee at the point of a renewal. We can provide certain administ um, administrative um, jobs or, or positions. We also have parts that include things such as um, there are changes of legislation during the process, so some people need some support when it comes to the admin side of the business. Um, additionally, we also have third-party providers, uh, plumbers, cleaners, movers, um, and we are being asked quite uh, frequently by our landlords if we can provide one. And we do it for a very small uh, commission that we actually take as a referral fee from the provider, not from the landlord. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, I mean, I, 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 I sense that you know, there's a lot of things like this where with a good IT infrastructure, you know, I, I, can you take care of my gas bill, for example? You know, with, with, with a little bit of imagination, you can automate that almost 100%. So it's not like you have to open an envelope, scan it, um, email it to them and ask them to pay it. You can actually set it up so it's a direct debit and they don't, they don't have to worry at all, right? Yeah, absolutely. No, for us, this is, we, when we start, we were looking at the virtualization of the industry. Can we take the human element out? Can we try and... Um, and tend a bit more um, scalable, right? Um, and the, the, the answer we got to is that historically industries went for full virtualization are, are commoditized ones, right? So e-commerce, gambling, travel, uh, insurance, it's the same product, right? I don't care if my Coke arrives through Ocado or through Tesco or through Sainsbury's. So for us, this is our industry now. It's one of the most bespoke you can think of. Every landlord is different. Every tenant is different. Every house is different. Every local authority has different regulation. Every citizen behaves differently. So we had to use a, a certain a human element in the chain, which we believe also allows to be a bit more personal and allows us to strengthen. So our repeating business and these additional services are not just because of our model, they're also driven by the human element and the account manager the landlord met and the fact that they bonded. So it's not about, uh, you know, our offering is, is incredibly appealing. We win the instruction before going, and we have over 90% conversion on face-to-face -face meetings. And those 10% are usually levels we don't take because we think either they're not, um, they're a bit dodgy or the property is not uh, in a great condition. So we win the instruction before going to the meeting. The reason we send highly qualified account managers that are exceptional is the fact that we want to build this relationship and we want to, to have this in. And the classic example is we actually have um, examples of landlords saying, I have an offer from a different agency. It's a great offer. I'm going to wait a couple more days because I like you know, this account manager. Right? And at the end, they might even take, and it did happen, they would take a lower offer from us because of the re relationship they developed. So it, it is um, a, you know, it's a people's business. Right? It's an operational business. It's not a, an internet business in that sense. It is highly reliable relying on technology and data a lot to make it uh, profitable, but at the end of the day, it's, it's people meeting people. Are, are your fees negotiable? I thought it was a flat fee, like £7.95, and that was it, or are other things you actually give varying, because that makes your cost of sales rather high if you have to make personalized uh, quotations. So my, my, my fees is not the offer, I mean, is the, the, the rent, the, the tenant are willing to provide. So. Um, Someone wants twenty five hundred. The tenant is willing to offer twenty four hundred. How do you bring that 
to the same place. And you have a strong incentive in a deal going through because you don't get a fee unless it goes through. And this is the classic, that, so this is something really to manage. And anyone listening, always be aware that the, the broker might have a different incentive structure. Because your fees are low already, you're in quite a good position to sort of not be accused of that. But yeah. but still, it's an issue. But actually, we've, we've jumped slightly ahead. I'd be really, obviously, we talked a little, um, just going back into your, just quickly go back to your childhood. When did you first think you might want to have a business of your own? And why did you, why did you wait so long before taking the plunge? Um, so growing up, so my, my father was an entrepreneur. And, and, um, so it was around me. I, I grew up in Israel where it's um, about 25% of the GDP is either high tech or, or startups. Mm-hmm. I, uh, with five childhood friends, three of them work for startups. One of them is a lawyer working for startups. So, it's around you in every way you go, and it's it's a it's a community rather than anything else. Um, I knew that I want to become an entrepreneur. I also knew that when when I left the Air Force, I knew that it's a, on my side I want to become a bit more international and to work in a global environment. So INSEAD was a great um, place to go. Um, and after that, I realized that meeting INSEAD, a lot of people that spent their twenties uh, in um, in front of Excel and PowerPoints, that there's a lot to be learned uh, outside first. So I want to make sure that I have a couple more years of experience before I go in a, in the start my own business. So in a way, you were quite cautious. Like we had a, a discussion earlier, I think, about whether entrepreneurs are risk takers or not. And obviously, <laughs> you know, also, and, and you know, not everyone has the capability of having a having a successful career in institutions. And also to, to work in a, a company like Bain, I'm, I'm not sure about the other one, but to get into a company like Bain, Bain is along with McKinsey and Boston Consulting Group, possibly the three best brands in strategy consulting in the world. You have to be a certain type of person. You have to sort of be, let's say, you don't get seriously weird people because you have to be comfortable. Uh, The clients have to be comfortable. There's a sort of a mixture of, uh, let's say, raw academic ability, but also interpersonal skills that not everyone has. So you obviously have the choice of like a stable high income in in that world. Um, but you I, I, I had a job offer that was incredibly appealing, but twice my salary in Bain just before leaving Bain to open the startup. So, um, in that sense, it was a um, the decision was very much. Uh, I was aware of the implications, that I was aware of the risk, and so on. And, and, it was and, and, actually my wife. Who, uh, my wife is the one who said, "Look, if you take this other job, you know, do whatever you think is, is best. But if you take this other job offer, you're not going to you're not going to open a startup." Yes. So just be aware of that. It's interesting, and obviously, you know, you know, some people are financially driven, um, and obviously, the, one of the benchmarks of success in business is is the financial outcome, um, not the only benchmark. Obviously, I hope for for you and for me and for other listeners. But um, when you were looking for your idea. Um, Obviously, were you like on the lookout for years and years, like brainstorming what could I possibly do, and looking for a big market with the right sort of dynamics, yeah. and and the, and then how did you stumble into the the idea you came for, and what what did you consider doing that you never did? <laughs> so it's a great question because we when, when I joined Bain, I joined Bain in order to open a startup later. I knew I want to gain two skills, um, and I want to do that first. I want to be able to see things from the eyes of the investor to make sure that I don't fall in love in my, with my idea um, and kind of lose the, what the market tells you. So that was the first one where Bain does it very, very well with its a private equity support group, um, which has about 60% global market share. So it's a very, very, very good. This is Bain Capital, right? 
No, that, that's Bain. So it's a within Bain. So Bain Capital is a different company now. Mm-hmm. Um, within Bain, there's, there's a, a ring fence called PEG, PEG, which is a private equity group. And over there, so you go in, and for six to nine months, every three weeks, you look at an investment by a private equity fund um, that is around, on average, around four billion pounds mm-hmm. in value. So you look at that, and, and you answer a single question, which is, is that a good company? So we become very, very efficient in, in getting all the secondary information, all the market information, in, in getting the voice of the customer, and look at innovation, and so on. And it's a hypothesis-driven approach, which allows you to do due diligence, to run it very, very efficiently and very quickly. Right? So every three weeks, I would look at a, at a sector that is very, very different from each other. And this is part of your training, or part, what, what, was the economic, what was the economic value for Bain of you doing this? Um, very high fees. Uh, okay. okay. <laughs> so, the private equity fund would pay Bain to allow them to, you know, to confirm that transaction, right? Okay. So, so it's, it's like a, it's a, it's a kind of due diligence process for the private equity group. Okay, so it's commercial due diligence. So um, I want to go and get this this perspective from the investor side, and also want to be very effective in how I get the voice of the customer in order to open a customer centric business. Nowadays, I would say ninety percent of business has to be customer centric. If you're a cost player. There's going to be someone without any rationale that will come and, come and try and cut below you and, and sell at a loss. So you have to be customer centric and win heart and mind there in, in, with your offering and service. So it's not. So if you look at my offering now, a part of it is our terms and conditions. You know the, the pricing, the what we do, what we don't do, etc. When do you pay? Success rate. There's the service level, which is a very important one, right? The quality of our documentation, the, the people you speak with when you call for support, the emails, etc. And there's the product. All those three things work together, right? So I want to get those two things. And I had my, my roadmap on how to, my timeline, how, when do I leave pain? And the date, and I, I looked about 10, 15 ideas. Some of them were okay, some of them were good, some of them were not good. Um, and I, I ran diligence for about three or four of those from my side, right? And the development of ideas at, that, at first was literally trying to find situations where every time that I would tell, I would tell myself something such as, uh, wow, this is so annoying, or this is so upsetting, I would pause and say, wait a minute, maybe we can solve it. Yeah, anytime you get annoyed, that's a great <laughs> business opportunity. Every every time you get really, really annoyed, that might be a business opportunity. So basically, <laughs> it's, that's a great way of looking at it. So, um, and, and what was the story of how, how did you, you, you told, so, me, told me in another conversation, how, yeah. did, how did you, what was the trigger for thinking there might be something in real estate? Um, so, I, I, I was looking at all kinds of ideas, the deadline arrived, I said, until I can't find the, the, the perfect idea, I'm not, I'm not uh, going to go forward the wrong, in the wrong direction. A month later, um, so I manage a couple of properties on behalf of uh, relatives, and, and one of them was, was out for that, and three agencies were working, it was incredibly painful to deal with them, incredibly painful. The, I still don't know how many viewings took place, I have no idea how many inquiries, I don't know any of it. Um, every, the documentation, every 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 interaction and touch point was relatively painful. So it was about two a.m. going back from Bain in a taxi, reading the emails from the um, from the estate agencies, getting very frustrated. And when I look outside and I see on the high street dozens of estate agents, one after another, I said, "Wow, this is insane! Who pays this guy's rent?" And then I realized it was me. I'm paying rent. I'm paying the rent. I never go to the branch, but I pay the rent. Or in average, on average, a landlord in London pays about a thousand pounds directly to the agency's rent. My fee is eight hundred. Yeah. So 
I, I arrived home, I, I really woke up my wife and <laughs> to tell her about it and, and we discussed it, right? And, and I said, and, and then I ran into diligence which involved a server with about a thousand landlords, agents and tenants. I interviewed about 50 agents in person. I spoke to the director of marketing of one of the portals, uh, two former managing directors of, of uh, large estate agents, agencies, um, and so on and so on. Um, and, and, that, and a lot of secondary researchers, a lot of market data and so on to make sure they have a sustainable case that allows me to go. And then we discussed that in the past as well around the due diligence, but where the hypothesis or the way that I, I did it allowed me to um, flag, and it was also very helpful when I went for, to speak with investors on an idea ring, where we structured in a way that if, if you want to believe that homemade is a good idea, you need to believe in three things. You need to believe that it's a good market, you need to believe that you can gain market share, and you need to believe that unit economics work, as in, I don't pay £20 to get £10 back. Right, so the good market was very very easy because it was you know the information is available. It's very big, fragmented, deregulated, growing, etc. etc. Also, there's a very clear pain point. Right, so I ran through a survey to narrow down on what's exactly the pain point that we're talking about. What are we addressing, and what we are not going to address now, and what we'll never address. Right, it was around identifying the pain that you, the, the problem you're solving and just focusing on that, not about what you think is the solution, just the problem. Mm-hmm. The second point around gaining share was very clear, which is, one, you want to make sure that there's a need for what you're offering now, and secondly, that your team is able to do that. So, you know, basically it's around, you can fake it till you make it, you can create a mock and show customers and ask them if they're interested, you can run a pilot with this offering, it, it, it lost at some point. And you can do a lot of other things in order to assess this part, and, and the team, of course, is around leadership and being, you need to sell, right, you need to sell customers, investors, and uh, team members. Mm-hmm. The unit economics was a part was around one part was around clearly the model. So, how does the PNL look like? What's the unit economics on a per unit? What's the fixed cost? How oh, does oh, it scale? Oh, oh, and what are, what are your unit economics of, of the seven hundred ninety five pounds you charge for the basic product? Um, so, how, how much does it cost you to deliver that? My average revenue per user is around eleven hundred. Right, mm-hmm. but I still make additional I earn additional revenue from other sources, um, not just normal fee. So. I, I operate on about 40% gross margin, mm-hmm. which could go up to 50% gross margin. Um, and not at a very significant scale, I, I can go to around 20% EBIT. So you get software margins on an operational business, because mm-hmm. um, this is a very much scale-driven business, right? It's, it's driven because the more properties I have in a certain location, the more viewings a single agent can take, the more applicants I have that I can cross-sell between different properties. It just becomes much, much easier as you grow. Yes. So, uh, so, so, yeah. so, so that, that, that's good. And, and for those who don't know the language of business, I, 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 I have no sympathy. You can spend 10 minutes on Google and you will know what EBIT stands for and you will know what gross margin means. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean, what it does mean is that for £1,000 of revenue, you might be keeping 400, 400 of you and 600 of your costs, right? That's what it means in terms of the breakdown. They don't have to pay the management, of and office, and technology, etc. Of course, and um, and how how are you doing? How are you doing? What what are your processes for acquiring acquiring customers? And I I know that you don't want to share everything because um, because that's that's to some extent proprietary. But um, how do your competitors acquire customers? Do you do the same things, or do you have other methods? And you know, what, do you have a breakdown between sales and marketing, or can you sell entirely online, where from people clicking on a banner ad on Yahoo to to getting money doesn't involve any human work? So, my, my, one of our 
company uh, uh, company culture values is is around um, being relentlessly resourceful, right? I believe that if we're going to do what others do, we're just going to reach less, right? They have the brand awareness, they have the pockets, they have the know-how, right? So if I'm going to do what other agencies are doing, I'm, I'm just going to reach less because they, they already have the customer base, they already have the systems, etc. So we do things that are very, very different, right? If you think of my competitors, you have, I have two types of competitors. I have traditional agency based on a you know, they invest a lot, a lot in above-the-line uh, advertising, they invest a lot in, uh, in putting signs outside of houses, they invest a lot in advertising in, in, in the media, right? So television, um, signs, uh, newspapers, etc. They also market their properties on, in the newspaper, which if you think of doing this in 2017, it's a bit, um, um, a bit outdated. <laughs> now, uh, then I have a couple of what I call the, inno uh, the innovators, right? Where a few online agencies, most of them are focused on sales. Now, because they're focused on sales, even if they offer some of them, offer a few uh, letting services, when you do sales, you address 70% of UK, the UK population, right? Because 70% of, of people live in a house they own, right? And you have no recurring revenue because the house is sold on average every 18 years. So you have to constantly be in the news in a very expensive line uh, type of advertising, television, again, radio, and newspapers. Um, and it's a constant battle, right? If you do a good job or you do a bad job, see you in 2035, mm -hmm. right? And for me, I, I'm based on a recurring revenue stream. My lifetime value of, of the customer is, um, is or, or the model is uh, relying to some extent, the fact that we'll have a repeating business, right? So it will do a good service. So I want to provide a good service, but it also means I need to attract and address that 0.1% of the population that are landlords. So there's absolutely no need for me to go up the funnel to to go in and, and have some brand awareness. We have no plans to do any brand awareness um, or advertising in that sense, right? So what we do is we do direct marketing. And we do from a, I won't share the exact techniques because we, they are commercially sensitive. But we go directly to the landlords because our problem is, if you think of the classic uh, marketing funnel of awareness, consideration, penetration. Awareness, do you know I exist? Consideration, am I an option? Penetration, are you using me? Our problem is just the top of the line. Right, it's just awareness. When landlords hear about us and listen, they actually listen to what we say. They're going to take us. It's it's a no-brainer. They're going to save me sixty to ninety percent. I have no risk because I don't pay you if you don't do your job, and I can I can use another agency. I get this online platform, which is uh, incredible. In, in the UX is is very strong, uh, so it, it's also very impressive. You do all the other services, no hidden fees, etc., etc. And, 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 and on top of that, now you've got some references. Like, if, like a year or two ago, you do, you you were like it was all faith, right? But now, now, and I, can you say how many customers you have right now, or is that sensitive as well? It's sensitive, but they, it's, we we are growing about between fifty to hundred percent month on month. Mm. Uh, with this target month is to grow to two hundred to three hundred percent. So we are developing quite quickly. Um, but when we look at customers, we, we deal with landlords, and, and um, they also don't necessarily want to, uh, you know, they, they also want to, they, they're not all the same in that sense, so uh, uh, we deal with large numbers. Uh, of course, and, and obviously if you've got 13 or 14 staff, um, you're not... Um... You're not, and you're growing by three or four people a month. You're not talking, but you don't have ten clients. You must have hundreds or thousands. You you must be getting to significant volumes at this stage, right? We are in the in the hundreds. 
in the hundred. And so uh, anyone who can do a bit of maths can immediately work out, work out, work out where you must be on the on. The, but it, uh, not approximately. But can you talk about your your finances? Like how much do you, how much did you raise? And are you when do you expect to be profitable? And will you be raising funds again once you yeah. you you? Uh, is there a stage at which you want to bring in a lot of capital so you can exp you can expand at scale? So is a um, it's not just about having the better model and the better service or the better product, right? It's also a matter of having the right muscles in place. Uh, we raised in the seed round, we raised uh, over 600,000 pounds uh, in seed with the expectation for it to take us all the way to profitability in the end of Q2 next year. Uh, at the same time, we want to go for an A round where we want to raise a, a significant amount of money that will allow us to take off and forward. As all startups do, I have to balance profitability and growth but if we, we may do a bit of a top-up now in terms of a, a head of the A round, as in raising a bit of the capital sum between 100 and 250,000 pounds uh, to allow us to accelerate even further. And, and the reason is that we have some lead time with our salespeople. So it takes about four to six weeks to get them fully operational. So if I scale too quickly, I get value destruction. Yes, yes, I, ab 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 absolutely. You can grow... You can grow. Slower well, in the long run, slower in the long run by growing too fast and taking on someone who's incompetent or annoys a customer might be costing you enormous amounts of money long term. And yeah. what sort of valuation would you be raising at? And is, is there any opportunity for anyone listening to this show to get involved if they've had the right references? So we, we raised one on uh, it was a pre money of three point two million when we did this, the seed round. Um, we are looking at a very hot market now. So and I explain what it is. There's a very unique structure now in the UK market where uh, the online lettings site is, is growing or reaches valuation that don't make any economic sense, but it's because of the, stru the structure of the market, I'll, I'll explain the same what it means. And at the same time, the traditional agencies are suffering and countrywide, the largest chain in the country, reported 98% decline in profitability. Foxons was, was down more than 40% profit. So the traditional agencies are being pushed in terms of pricing. And they have to do cost cutting, which which spins off again in terms of quality of service, and and they can't win this fight, right? They they always have the old structure, the old systems, etc. It's, like, it's, like it's like traditional retail versus versus Amazon. There's only one way yeah. it's going. There's only one way it's going. Yeah. Now I, I, I did work a lot in e-commerce, right? So during my consulting career, so there's a lot of you you can battle e-commerce in certain ways, but you, you have to be different. And, and I believe that in this specific industry, they, they'll struggle. Now, then you have the online players. The online players are mostly in the sales department, right? And the reason is that operationally, it is uh, much easier, right? You All you do is you make calls, you generate viewings, and you conduct viewing. The moment the viewing is over, you hand over to the solicitors, um, and that's it, basically. You can also charge fees up front. You, you deal with mass, uh, you know, mass audience. And more than anything, what you do when you look at sales is that your demographics, the people you're working with, are a bit more uh, narrow in terms of their um, uh, professionalism. They're easier to, to deal with. What we do in Latins is a much, much more complicated business. Mm -hmm. So you right? so say it's complicated. Right. So, it's, so it's, uh, I got it. So, so there's something special. So any, any, anyway, you, you, you might be, presumably you'd be going back to your original angels or to, for, for more money. Or, but it, what we we'll do, what we we'll do there, so, so just to touch and recognize, so the reason that the, on, so the online, uh, the ones of Fox and Sales are now trading at insane valuation. So we had one competitor raise 26 million now on, on 
where the unit economics still makes a loss, which is around 40 times revenue. We have one that just raised 9 million, it's, it's about 10 times revenue. Uh, we have one big player that within three and a half years reached an over a billion pound valuation, um, where they are trading at about 20, 25 times revenue. So very high valuations. Um, I, I personally don't, can't justify it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so so in, in our okay, so in our perspective, I want to raise significant amounts of capital, not because of, it's not a matter of greed, it's a matter of going big and replicating the model, because now we're in a place where we've proved the whole uh, business operations and our ability to scale it up, and now it's about creating those, you know, more and more of those units. So what we'll do is, is the A round, we're going to raise capital for very specific purposes, not just to scale the business and to expand as well. Um, and if we raise additional capital, this 100 to 15 in the middle, then we're going to do it probably from um, from private investors that um, basically doing the process. So it's, it's it is just about reducing risk for everyone and being able to accelerate as we go. And usually, and this is a, an interesting point, usually businesses reach a place where they have to choose profitability or growth. We are now actually in a place where it's aligned. Yes. The faster I grow, the faster I go to this breaking point. Well, if, if you're interested, I might be able to make some introductions of people who are like what I call high-value-added investors who can bring brain power as well as money because um, it, it, I don't know if that you, you may not need that, but if you are interested, I could do that. Okay, um, just no, because I'm under slight time pressure. I've got a train to catch. I need to get in a taxi in 20 minutes from now, so we've got about another 15. Um, what about the? Um, I'm interested in leadership style and um, how you make sure that the people in your organisation work the way you want. And um, obviously, you've got your 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 military background. And yesterday there was a brilliant talk from an American. Uh, uh, Navy flyer who was talking about how much business could learn from the military, which is not something that everyone knows about, but yeah. I, I'm sure you do. Uh, so, what, what do you? How, how how do you define your leadership role in the business, and how do you make so, it happen? Yeah, I mean, it's a it, it, it's a constant I would say, by the way, to define your your role and in, in, in position. And I think a lot of it is when we started, given that the idea, the development of business, all around me. It was much more centralized, and now I need to move to a place where you empower people to make more and more decisions, and, and be responsible and accountable for those decisions. So, a classic example that we, we talked, uh, we discussed it last time we spoke, is, and it's something that I share with my management, is, is every time that I would disagree with someone, right, and, and think of it as like as a two-way two again, where one axis is how important this is, this decision, and the second one is how certain I am of the uh, that I know the answer. And let's say that the other person disagrees, right? So if it's very important, I know the answer, the other person disagrees. I'm sorry, it's very important. I know it's right because I've, I've done it before. There's clear data to show for it. It actually happens in very few cases. It's not important. I don't know the answer. You, doing your, you do your thing. I'll tell you, what, you know, what, why I think the other way. It's, it's your decision. When it becomes interesting for leaders is the other two, right? What do you do when it's very important? You don't know the answer. But it's this other person's domain. What do you do there? If you force your way of thinking, then to a certain extent, you're stopping them from making decisions in the future. So there you have to go depending on, on the person and, and show them the right, you know, what you think. I would usually show them why I think it's the, the wrong decision, and I would try to make to go with their decision, especially, definitely when it comes to uh, things such as uh, 
recruitment, I would always go with the decision because they are the ones who are going to be accountable in dealing with this person. When it's the other way, when it's, it's not important but I know the answer, I would, uh, I would actually, we'll have a debate on this, right? And I, I would actually take the other person's view. Okay? A classic example, marketing associate want to go in a, in, and show some a, a, an initiative that he developed. I said, like, look, I know it will fail. I'll show you why it will fail, right? But then please go and do that. Here's your budget. Here you go, 500 pounds. Go and prove me wrong. Worked very hard. We, 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 it succeeded partially or failed partially, depending on how you look at it. But we learned a lot that allows to develop it. And it also allows people to feel that the self-actualization and, and the participation. Working on founders' mentality is a very important part of a startup. It's why people join a startup, really. And, and do you? Um, and how do? How do you? Uh, where do you get inspiration from in terms of, um, like, I'm um, to stay successful, to be successful, you need to be open to learning. And obviously, as a CEO and founder, you don't have a lot of spare time. Other places you go that, or you advise people to follow the people who inspire you and who who keep you motivated and keep you going. Other blogs or books you read or podcasts or what? So it's it's exactly those three, right? So like I mean. I, I feel very boring to say that, but I, I, I scroll a lot doing LinkedIn and just from serendipity, mm -hmm. I, I tend to stumble upon some, some sort of a sources that I find very helpful. Mm -hmm. There are some people I follow in, with that context as well. Um, and there's a lot of, uh, just Google is your friend, right? Just searching things that are uh, specifically relevant. And, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot around, so like, uh, it's a lot around being very efficient time-wise. Because you, your resources are also limited, right? So, for example, when I, you know, I, we, we chose an office that is about 15 minutes, 55 minutes away from where I live. And on the way, I walk onto, you know, into you by walk on my laptop. And this is a classic time for me to go and look at certain sources that I prepare in advance and to, to solve those problems. So I, I need to develop as well. And I need to find a way to develop other people. So... We do a lot of, uh, we try to create, so we have, for example, we have uh, personal development meetings before the mentoring, right? So I have one once every two weeks, discussing with them direct feedback for both directions, right? What can we do to be better? What can they do, what I can do, and um, how do we get that together, do they need resources and so on? That's on a personal basis. From a decision-making, there's a lot of communication throughout the week that allows them to, um, to communicate. And there's something that I used to do, which I really like, um, and I strongly encourage every person working in a team, you know, in a group, is when you meet with people that, are, that report to you, ask them to say, what would make this experience the best experience ever? Let them set the objectives, right? It's super subjective, right? For one, it's about money, the other one's about quality of life, the other one is the learning, and so on and so on and so on. So... When they set the objective, then you can walk backwards and say, like, how can we make it happen and what do you need to do? So it's not in my, it's not in my play to, or it's not in my side of the field to, to make it happen. So, for example, in, let's take Bain as an example, right? An analyst will tell me I want to get a perfect score because I'm heading, you know, I'm going for a promotion cycle. I'm like, absolutely. Let me tell you what you need to do in order to get this score. I can't guarantee you get the score. It's in your side, but it's a very clear expectation as to what you need to do. And it allows people to, to, to do two things. Firstly, to know exactly there's, there's complete transparency around expectations. And secondly, they can celebrate when they achieve that. So when they reach their place, like three months ago, I said this would make it the best thing ever. I reached two out of three. Wow, that's amazing. So um, it's something I strongly encourage. I, I work with that with my people as well. And I think it also allows people to um, set their own development 
and become leaders in the orchid as well. Yes, and, and the, the business of one-on-ones ties in very closely. That uh, one-on-ones means having individual time with people who report to you on a on a structured basis. There's a, a recently the founder of Zapier or Zapier um, was being uh, referred to a podcast I followed by two ex-military guys um, called Manager Tools. And he, he said that he didn't really, he thought you shouldn't innovate in management, you innovate in product, innovate in technology, but there are ways of managing people. And a lot of startup, find, I wish I'd known this 30 years ago, a lot of startup finders don't realize that they are in a people business. To, to motivate people and lead people, you need to get to know them. Why the hell should they follow you and stay late and miss, miss yeah. important things if you don't know anything about them as people, right? Absolutely. And, and, and I would have mentioned earlier, you need to inspire, right? So my job as a CEO is to keep people inspired and motivated. We are working very hard. They can make more money elsewhere, right? They can be do more senior things elsewhere. So it's about having the inspiration. And so if you think of it again, Google sells ads. That's what they do. They manage to package it as a very attractive company. Mm-hmm. If Apple creates hardware, you know, it, it, it's all about creating this greater purpose, right? That, that allows you to gather people around the same target and then also help them lead them in the process, right? But you need to create this inspiration, this um, higher purpose, that you, because if not, they just won't follow you. So so knowing people setting an example, um, we could we could talk for hours, but we are, we are coming towards the end, towards the end of our time now. So, if there was one piece of advice you could give to a, a anyone listening, be they sixty years old, twenty years old, ten or or ninety, about what you know what you would say to someone considering whether entrepreneurship is right for them, or maybe they're in business, what they should really focus on. What, what do you feel there's, there's one thing you'd say to either people who will be entrepreneurs or who are entrepreneurs that you think you've learned that would be valuable for them? I think one of the best advice I received was, if you want to become an entrepreneur, don't. Okay, And don't is because you can't only if it's, in, it's burning your blood, only your idea, you, you must do that. You're going to be insane not to do it. Then you're going to have the conviction and energy against all this, you know, all the resilience that's required as a, as a leader in a, in a new business, right? And it's not a demotivating thing, it's the opposite, right? As in, find a thing that you strongly believe, that you feel incredibly emotional or strong sentiment around either being a customer or about creating the entity that will provide this service or product. Right? Do the diligence around it and then just move, just tenacity, just make it happen all the time. Like, just keep on moving forward. You're going to get punched in the face. You keep on moving forward. And, and it's what makes it worth it, right? And as, as, my, as we say in the, in the company, right? Someone asked us in an interview, is it glamorous to be in a startup? And the answer is, everything you do is great. Everything you do is great. But then you look back and everything is glamorous. You know, nine months ago, five, six months ago, we were four. Nine months ago, we were two. A year ago, I was on my own, right? We now have you know, about 20 people. We're going to reach 40 probably by the beginning of next year, a calendar year. It is glamorous only when you look back. So you need to have this conviction and, and belief in what you're doing in order to run through. And, and if you don't have it to begin with, just don't. So, Asaf, thank you so much for your time. Uh, we'll obviously post uh, your contact details of your company and so on. If anyone's interested in learning what it's like to be in a, high, a ultra high growth startup and they're convinced by this interview and they they're not ready to start yet, I, I've only met you face to face once and we've met a couple of times online. But uh, I'm I'm confident that this is going to be a very exciting story. So um, I'd just like to wish thank you very much again for your time. Uh, if you enjoyed this interview, please leave uh, leave a review on. I- 
iTunes or a comment on the, on, on the webpage. And uh, see you next time. So thanks very much indeed. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Project Kashmir, brought to you by me, your host, Richard Lucas. If you enjoyed listening, check out additional podcasts on our webpage, projectkashmir.com, or on iTunes, where you can also subscribe so you never miss an episode, and also leave us a five-star review if you feel like it. We welcome feedback and suggestions of new interviewees, whether as comments on projectkashmir.com or via our page on Facebook. This podcast was produced by Adam Zuber. Thank you again for listening. You know, vision is all great and well, but execution is actually the key. The actual process of meeting those people, working with them, is in itself a huge reward. Interaction between the university and the business high-tech community is absolutely fundamental. Diversity creates a healthy ecosystem, and I think that I'm seeing more and more that diversity. It's not just about individuals, but about new individuals, it's about, you know, um, new initiatives. Sometimes they overlap with each other, sometimes they might be cannibalizing each other, but the reality is that you want to have as many as possible, because that accelerates the big picture. We're not going to have everyone in the world here, and in this connected world, we don't need everyone here, but, but the, you know, the artists and the designers, the creatives, they're very much part of what we what we've got and what we need so if you're listening again somewhere else in the world and you feel you, you're looking for a place where your, your your creative juices will run then 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 this city is certainly a place where you can find yourself and I think you can make history in Poland I think you can be part of something much bigger than you could be a part of in the United States right now not just from a you know, going out to San Francisco to make Silicon Valley richer, but but making a new part of the world um, grow at a much faster rate, be a much bigger part of that community, and and making it wealthy not just for wealth's sake, but for uh, a purpose, which is to make that country's government stronger, 